Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. This weekend marks 500 days of the war in Ukraine. It is with that backdrop that leaders from 31 NATO countries will assemble in Vilnius, Lithuania, in what promises to be a pivotal summit for European security. This year's agenda is expected to focus on security guarantees for Kyiv, Sweden's accession, and NATO's evolving relationship with China. Here at FP, we've just published a series of short essays looking at the biggest issues facing NATO. You can find it on our homepage, and we've also included it at the top of our show notes. The authors include Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba, who argues that if you want to prevent the next war in Europe, you need Ukraine in NATO. Other experts like Angela Stent, Liana Fix, Anne-Marie Slaughter, and others take on a range of issues from Russia after Putin to how to deal with China. One of the authors in the series is Anders Faux Rasmussen, who argues that it's a mistake to not commit to admitting Ukraine into NATO. If membership isn't possible, he says, security guarantees are needed right away. Rasmussen was NATO's Secretary General from 2009 to 2014, and before that, Prime Minister of Denmark. He's also the founder of the Alliance of Democracies, and you'll hear us get into a bit of a tiff about that. As always, FP subscribers get to send in questions that frame these discussions. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. For now, let's get started. Anders for Rasmussen, welcome back to FP Live. Thank you for having me. So let's start with your essay in FP. You say the best path to admit Ukraine into NATO is by focusing on security guarantees in the short term, which you liken to U.S. military support for Israel. Expand on that. It's important to understand that we need security guarantees, regardless of all the discussions about future membership of of Ukraine. Until Ukraine can join NATO, Ukraine will need security guarantees. Um, Last summer, I prepared a set of proposals called the Kiev Security Compact uh, that I handed over to President Zelensky. The essence of it is to make Ukraine capable of defending itself by itself, by helping Ukraine build a strong military, so strong that it can withstand any future Russian attack, by enhancing exchange of intelligence between Ukraine and its allies, by sustaining joint training and exercises on the NATO and EU flag, and by building a strong Ukrainian defense industry, so Ukraine can produce military equipment and ammunition itself. So that's the core of the Kyiv Security Compact. 
you know, it strikes me that you've been saying it, it would be a mistake to not make commitments to Ukraine while the war is ongoing. But that position uh, to not make commitments is the position of the current Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, as well as that of several member countries. So how do you square that? And aren't you worried about Russia perhaps exploiting differences between member states here? Yeah, the worst thing that could happen at the Vilnius summit is a split uh, within the alliance and a split between NATO and Ukraine. So I think first and foremost, we have to ensure that we keep the unity, the unprecedented unity we have seen within the alliance and across the Atlantic uh, during uh, the last couple of years. I think to square the circle, we would need three things. Firstly, to offer Ukraine an accelerated path towards NATO membership, just like Finland and Sweden. Second, to establish a NATO-Ukraine Council with the task to determine exactly which conditions should be fulfilled for Ukraine to join NATO. And third, to review this question next year when NATO meets in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the 76th anniversary of NATO. It seems to me there's some distance between what you are proposing um, and what you know currently seems to be the NATO consensus, uh, especially given some of the divisions among member states. Now, you informally advise Ukraine's President Zelensky. Do you think he uh, will be satisfied with what's currently on the table from NATO? Well, negotiations are continuing until the very last minute, I think, uh, next uh, week. Uh, when we have the NATO summit in, in Vilnius. So we are not able to determine the final outcome uh, yet. But I'm quite optimistic uh, regarding security guarantees. It seems that a number of allies uh, will sign a document, uh, a, a kind of an umbrella under which individual allies uh, can agree on bilateral security agreements uh, with uh, Ukraine. And in that respect, I'm quite optimistic. It remains to be seen how far we can go when it comes to uh, the Ukrainian membership uh, perspectives. But let me remind you that back in 2008, NATO decided that Ukraine will become a member of NATO. Now Ukraine has been in the waiting room for 15 years. So we have to go beyond the language uh, from uh, the NATO summit in Bucharest 2008. One possibility would be to say, okay, uh, Ukraine uh, do not does not need to fulfill the conditions in a membership action plan, it's called. It's somewhat technical, but it, it's the next step. It was decided in 2008, that's the next step for Ukraine. But we don't need that. We didn't require Finland and Sweden to join a membership action plan before we invited them. And actually, Ukraine has demonstrated in the battlefield, that they fulfill all the necessary criteria. So 
I think we could do something when it comes to the membership perspective that would move beyond the 2008 decision. But let me ask you this, given that a war is ongoing, could NATO ever realistically accept Ukraine as a full-fledged member if some of its territory is still occupied by Russia? And I ask this because, you know, Moscow's maintained breakaway states of sorts in Georgia and Moldova, which in a sense has made it so much harder for them to ever join NATO on paper. Exactly. And that's <laughs> that's a goal uh, of Putin's many maneuvers to keep his neighbors weak and dependent on the Kremlin and prevent them from joining the Euro-Atlantic structures, NATO and the European Union, by uh, um, freezing conflicts uh, in Georgia, as you mentioned, up cases South Ossetia, and in Ukraine by taking Crimea and de facto occupying parts of uh, the Donbass uh, region. But listen, if we declare publicly that Ukraine cannot join NATO as long as a war is going on, we are de facto providing Putin with an argument to continue the conflict to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. So my answer to your question is, yes, uh, we, we could invite uh, Ukraine to join NATO even if a war uh, is still going on. Obviously, there would be practical issues to sort out, including how Article 5 could and should apply to a member state actually in war, but where there is a will, there is also a way. I want to channel uh, David McLaughlin and many of our other subscribers who are writing in just very quickly beyond uh, potential accession, beyond the security guarantees. What else do you think will emerge next week for Kiev? What else can Ukraine get out of NATO in terms of commitments? Yeah, but first of all, um, the security guarantees will not be a NATO issue. It will be uh, an issue between a number of individual allies and Ukraine. Uh, it will be led by the United States, joined by the UK, Germany, France, Poland, maybe others. And I would expect such a document to be signed in the run-up to Vilnius or at the sidelines uh, of, of Vilnius. But it would be seen in the context of, of the Vilnius uh, summit. Now, uh, furthermore, I would expect um, uh, some progress uh, when it comes to uh, Ukraine's NATO perspective. I, I cannot imagine just to repeat the language from 2008. That would actually be a big, big uh, disappointment. We should not underestimate the strength of establishing a, a NATO-Ukraine council. Today, we have a NATO-Ukraine commission. Uh, but to change that into a council actually elevates the status of Ukraine. Ukraine will then be uh, a member with an equal status uh, like the, NATO, uh, the 31 NATO allies, which means that 
Ukraine can bring issues to the table and Ukraine can demand meetings uh, in, in uh, this uh, council. So I think those elements could be expected by, by Ukraine at the summit. Mm. Now, you know, as part of your work with the Kiev Security Compact, which you co-wrote with Andrei Yermak in the Ukrainian government, I know you've been doing the rounds in Europe and the United States, shoring up support for Ukraine. You have got your finger on the pulse. And so I ask you, which NATO and Western countries do you think are experiencing donor fatigue in this moment? So in other words, which ones have domestic pressures that could prevent them from supporting Kiev in the longer term? Actually, I've been positively surprised to learn about the resilience, uh, both in Europe and the United States, when it comes to continuing supporting uh, Ukraine. But obviously, everybody is now watching the development uh, in the United States as we are approaching uh, elections uh, next year. I think all that speaks in favor of uh, pushing even harder uh, to make sure that weapon deliveries and other kinds of assistance to Ukraine are accelerated uh, so that uh, we avoid to mix it up with the upcoming election campaign uh, in in the United States. Uh, The good news is uh, from my several visits uh, to D.C., where I spoke with both the administration and members of Congress, that there seems to be a broad bipartisan support for continuing the assistance uh, to to Ukraine. Apart from small minorities in both parties, uh, there seems to be a broad bipartisan support for Ukraine and against uh, Russia. I appreciate that, and I hope that will persist uh, also next year when we are in a heated election campaign. Well, I should just point out that the the two main frontrunners for the GOP nomination, uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, um, have both often seemed dismissive uh, of the war in Ukraine. I think DeSantis has called it a territorial dispute. Um, So there are fears uh, here in the United States. And I imagine because of that in Europe, that U.S. support could dwindle, uh, especially if there's a change in leadership. But I want to ask you a question related to that, because um, just this this morning, it's emerged that the Biden administration seems likely to allow uh, cluster bombs uh, to be delivered to Ukraine. And this is something that, you know, the U.S. has previously been against partly because cluster bombs often leave duds behind and those duds can hurt children after the fact. There are, you know, many human rights groups that are critical of the use of cluster munitions. Where do you come down on this? I mean, is part of what you're describing about this sort of desperation to win the war now, is that leading to decisions uh, such as this one uh, that could have other harmful ramifications? Yeah, but let me be clear on cluster bombs. I don't like them. I don't like them. Um, They are brutal uh, weapons. And there is a reason why countries uh, around the world have have banned them. 
However, whether I uh, support them or not, they have been used already by both sides uh, in, in the war. Uh, the difference is uh, Ukraine using them to defend its territory. Russia is using them as an aggressor. So it's understandable why the Ukrainians uh, want those terrible weapons to defend themselves against a brutal uh, aggressor. However, I, I think it underlines the need for delivering heavier weapons to the Ukrainians to, to really get the upper hand uh, in, in the battlefield. Uh, not only longer range missiles, heavy uh, battle tanks, but also uh, fighter jets. That's actually what the Ukrainians need most right now. Indeed, and we published an essay by Foreign Minister Kuleba on exactly that about fighter jets. Um, I want to talk about Turkey uh, because it often looms large every time there's a NATO summit. And the last time you were on FP Live, we spoke about this, and it seems to me there hasn't really been that much movement since then. So, yes, Finland has joined, but Turkey was an obstacle then, and now it's once again proving to be a hurdle for Sweden's accession. Um, how are you thinking about Turkey, um, especially with a Erdogan returning to power, rejuvenated? Um, what kind of leverage does NATO have over him? Yeah, all decisions in NATO are taken by unanimity. We need consensus whenever NATO uh, takes uh, decisions. That's both a strength and a weakness. It's a weakness because it may take endless times and efforts, not least by Secretary General, to try to, to, um, to work out uh, a sustainable uh, compromise. But once we have achieved the consensus, it's also a strength because uh, the, the alliance moves uh, in, in unity. As regards uh, Sweden, um, I'm still optimistic. I think uh, eventually uh, we will get a decision uh, that Sweden will join NATO and I also foresee that it will happen in a not too distant uh, future. Uh, yesterday, there was a meeting at NATO headquarters, uh, including Turkey and, and Sweden. A new meeting has been organized for Monday between Erdogan and uh, the Swedish Prime Minister Christensen. I hope that will bring sufficient uh, progress so mm. that uh, Sweden uh, can join uh, as soon as possible. There may be some problems uh, logistically about uh, ratification uh, in the Hungarian and Turkish uh, parliament, uh, but if a political decision could be taken at the summit in Vilnius, I, I would consider that a great uh, success. I'm hopeful that might happen. You know, many of our subscribers are also very interested in the Turkey issue. I just want to name check them, Robert Owen Friedman, Dora Loveva, Joshua. And one of their questions is, should there be talks to expel Turkey from NATO? Has this ever come up when you were Secretary General uh, or in the years since? No, and I don't think it would be a wise decision to go down that road. 
obviously, I'm also concerned about Turkey. I'm concerned about the purchase of uh, Russian military equipment. I'm concerned about Erdogan's closing up uh, with Putin. I'm concerned about the domestic political development in Turkey, the suppression of the opposition, uh, lack of respect for uh, rule of law, human rights, etc., etc. So we have a lot to be concerned about when it comes to Turkey. But having said all that, we also need Turkey uh, as an ally, as a bridge between uh, the East and the West. And I'm concerned that if we try to kick out uh, Turkey from NATO, um, Turkey would be even more Eastern-oriented and even less uh, reform-oriented. So I prefer uh, to maintain what I would call a critical dialogue uh, with Ankara. Also because half of the Turkish population has shown in elections that they want political change. And I think we owe it to them to maintain uh, the links uh, with Ankara. By the way, NATO does not have any mechanism as to how we kick out uh, members. So it would be a very, very complicated process uh, if we decided to do so but I cannot recommend to go down that road. So something you just said really stuck with me. You said we need Turkey. uh, And that strikes me as realism, um, which is often in conflict with values. So I I just want to talk about democracy a little bit more because you run a group called the Alliance of Democracies. NATO leaders often pride themselves in being an alliance of democracies. But What do you do then when your own member states, let's say Turkey or Hungary, when they exhibit clear signs of democratic recession? So what happens to NATO's values then? And how do you square that with the realism that you seem to be exhibiting right now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I see your point, but... (laughs) It's hard, I, I know. Yeah, I, 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 what I would call um, uh, a, a, a realistic idealist. Uh, and um, um, I think we should consider what would be the alternative if we kick out Hungary from the European Union, if we kick out uh, Turkey from NATO, would that improve the whole situation? Would that strengthen the alliance of democracies? My conclusion is no. Uh, and if we look at this in a helicopter perspective, then I think we have bigger fish to fry. Uh, we have seen how the world's autocracies have advanced uh, during recent years. I think we have seen Uh, a decline in global freedom and democracy for the 17th consecutive year. That's the real challenge. Uh, So we have to um, improve uh, the cooperation between the world's democracies to counter the world's autocracies. And in that respect, I consider Putin and Xi Jinping, uh, Kim Jong-un, as sad a bigger enemies uh, than Erdogan and Orban. But, you know, I think I, I want to push you a little bit more on this because 
it strikes me as a divide between the rhetoric we often hear from leaders um, and then the reality. So the reality, as you've just described it, often tends to be gray. It often tends to be realism or idealistic realism, as you put it right now. But then when you hear, say, President Biden, who has tried to align democracies against autocracies, which makes it sound much more black and white than the gray that you're describing, um, that sort of rhetoric, it often seems to backfire, I think, when he has to fist bump Saudi's MBS or when he's unable to call out India's Narendra Modi for problems with human rights or freedom of the press in India uh, or with Turkey, as you've just been describing quite honestly. So isn't there a problem then with groups such as NATO, with countries in the West that you know talk in a certain way about democracies versus autocracies, but then when it comes to choosing between values and interests, end up choosing interests? Um, you're right. It, it isn't black and white, uh, but I think basically we are approaching a new world order with two camps, an autocratic camp led by China and a democratic camp led by the United States. But in between, you have a gray zone. You have what I would call non-aligned democracies. India is actually a prominent example of that. And you have non-aligned autocracies like uh, the, the Gulf Kingdoms, uh, for example. And we, the democratic countries, should invest much more efforts in anchoring, for instance, India firmly in the democratic camp encourage them to cut ties uh, with Russia and providing India uh, with weapons and uh, what else uh, they get from Russia uh, right now. I think that is a, a realistic idealism uh, to uh, gang up against the autocrats uh, and uh, invest efforts in ensuring that some of the countries in the grey zone uh, will be firmly anchored uh, in the democratic camp. And still, I think this is much more important than going into details about uh, Erdogan and Orban. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, so sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So since we're talking about China, let's go there. Um, Japan, South Korea and Australia are attending the NATO summit this year. What kind of signal do you think that's sending to Beijing? Yeah, but obviously sending a clear signal to Beijing uh, that uh, uh, NATO, though it is a North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is also focused on, on what is going on in Southeast uh, Asia. And of course, it is a clear signal to Beijing not to try to change status quo uh, when it comes to uh, Taiwan. I visited Taiwan at the beginning of, of this year, uh, and they are preparing for all eventualities, uh, and I understand them. 
Uh, and I think we should not repeat the mistakes we made with Putin. The US and Europe reacted much too mildly uh, when Putin attacked Georgia and since then uh, Ukraine. And he miscalculated uh, that as a weakness he could exploit. I think we should be very clear with China and tell China in advance, if you dare to attack Taiwan, you'll uh, meet severe consequences. Uh, we will help Taiwan militarily and you will be exposed uh, to, to sanctions. Uh, so I think to send that clear message to China in advance might deter China from attacking uh, Taiwan and trying to change status quo. The problem with sanctions on China, however, are, you know, for example, what we've seen this week with China coming back with restrictions on gallium and germanium to significant metals that go into the creation of semiconductors. China controls 80% of that market. Um, you know, China's not Russia. It's the second biggest economy in the world. And what I want to get to with this is that we were discussing earlier some of the differences among European countries when it comes to Ukraine, I would argue there are even greater differences among European countries and even NATO countries when it comes to China. So the US is probably the most hawkish, but France has often made the case for strategic autonomy. Uh, President Macron even took dozens of CEOs with him on a visit to Beijing. And then you have Eastern European countries, which certainly need China more than richer European countries do. So aren't you worried about Beijing exploiting these differences? Yes, you're quite right. China is is another beast than than Russia. We we are much more dependent uh, on 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 China. Uh, but I think it's a reminder uh, that we should reduce our dependence on autocratic uh, countries. Um, so, for instance, when it comes to semiconductors, we should as fast as possible. Uh, build up our own capacity. Uh, and we should ex uh, extract uh, rare earths and critical minerals, minerals at a much higher pace than we have done uh, in the past. Uh, we cannot uh, reduce um, our dependence on Russian oil just to get addicted uh, to Chinese rare earths and critical uh, minerals. So we have a, a great challenge, but I think even in Europe, you have seen, uh, uh, even in Europe, uh, China's behavior is an eye-opener. And you have seen a lot of uh, uh, European steps like de facto banning Huawei uh, by a new... EU Commission proposal to um, strengthen what we call um, economic security, including investment screening mechanisms, stricter export controls, etc., etc. So Europe is actually following suit. I, I hear you on that. I guess the question I was trying to get at is, isn't there a risk of overreach um, on NATO's part since it's a security alliance? Isn't there a risk that Beijing will, in turn, react in ways that won't help NATO or Europe? Um, isn't there a risk that 
a lot of what NATO is trying to do right now, if it is overreach, that it could backfire, just given how different Asia is than Europe, given how some of the non-aligned countries you described in Asia, India and Indonesia, you know, they're on the fence when it comes to the war in Ukraine. When it comes to China, they're far more conflicted. Yeah. And we should not forget that NATO is an abbreviation of North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So NATO will remain focused on the North Atlantic area. However, uh, the US, Canada, and uh, certainly, uh, and definitely also uh, France, consider themselves Pacific uh, nations. And that's why uh, NATO is now focused on the security challenges uh, from uh, China. But I don't foresee an active NATO engagement as such in military conflicts uh, in and around the South uh, China Sea or between China and uh, Taiwan. However, I think the US uh, would expect important NATO allies to be helpful if it came to a military conflict uh, between uh, the US and China. And definitely, I think, to deter China from moving in that direction, it is important uh, that NATO allies discuss it so that China knows in advance there is a clear risk if they engage in military adventures. Yeah, I hear you, and that deterrence is a big part of this. Um, since we're spanning the globe, another one of our subscribers, Tim Reed, had a great question. He says, Africa is an area of great interest in NATO because of security, migration, economic interests, yet it has been increasingly mishandled, he says, by member states as they have supported dictators and warlords across Africa. So this has opened the door wide to actors like Wagner and China. How should NATO adapt when it comes to Africa policy? Yeah, I think the West should be much more focused uh, on the African uh, continent. The fact is that uh, China has invested heavily uh, in in Africa. And uh, China does not uh, ask critical questions about uh, human rights. Um, uh, they uh, deliver money, they deliver investments, but in exchange, they extract uh, minerals, for instance, which are then uh, brought to China uh, to be further um, handled and produced. They do not create, they do not create jobs uh, in Africa. And I think in Africa, more and more people are aware of that. We have all seen how Russia has increased its military engagement. You mentioned the Wagner Group as an example, that's right. And actually, I think the values of the West are much closer to the basic interests uh, of the African people. But we have uh, left it uh, to China and Russia to engage in Africa. So I think we should invest much heavier politically as well as economically in Africa. By the way, also in uh, Latin America, that's actually the exact the same problem. 
Well, now that we've spanned the globe, I just want to bring us back to Russia and the war in Ukraine in our final few minutes. Um, so it's been two weeks now since the Wagner rebellion. Do you think there's still a threat to Putin's stranglehold on power? Yeah, I think Putin has been significantly weakened uh, by the mutiny of the Wagner uh, group. Uh, now, it's mysterious where Prigozhin, uh, he resides uh, right now, uh, and we don't know the full content of the deal between uh, uh, Putin, the Belarusian dictator Lukashenko, and Prigozhin. I think the whole affair uh, has uh, weakened uh, Putin, which also add a quite new perspective to the whole strategic perspectives of the war in Ukraine. I think so far Putin has calculated that time was an, on his side. I think the conclusion now is uh, it's not necessarily on Putin's uh, side. He thought he could outlast Europe and the US by our populations being tired of war, tired of continual assistance to Ukraine. But now he has to realize that the longer the war drags out, the bigger the risk of fragmentation and conflicts uh, within uh, the Russian society. So now uh, the war, the time is not necessarily on Putin's side. That's a big strategic change. Mm. I know you speak with senior Ukrainian officials very often. Um, are you able to tell us whether they are at all disappointed by the counteroffensive so far and what it's been able to achieve? Are you at all disappointed? I think we have to be realistic that our hesitation to deliver heavy weapons to the Ukrainians in due time has made the counteroffensive uh, very complicated, much more difficult than uh, we had expected, because Putin has exploited our hesitation to fortify the Russian defenses in the occupied territories. So it just underlines the need to deliver to the Ukrainians all the weapons they need as fast as possible. I have never ever understood why we have self-imposed restrictions on our weapon deliveries. We should have used a big hammer uh, right from the start. We have a clear interest in putting this conflict to a, con a quick end. Well, almost in, in answer to your question of why there's been hesitation, one of our subscribers, Gloria Renner, um, has a question and she says that desperation may trigger Putin's use of nuclear weapons. Aren't you worried about Putin lashing out or the nuclear issue or what's going on in Zaporizhia? No, I'm not concerned about the nuclear issue. I don't think uh, Putin uh, dares uh, to push uh, the nuclear button. First of all, because uh, the Russian military knows very well that if they were to use nuclear weapons, it would have devastating consequences for the Russian military because our, I mean, uh, the response from the United States and the allies uh, would be very harsh. And 
the rest of the world will turn its back uh, to uh, Russia, including uh, China and, and India. An attempt to use uh, nuclear weapons would be the end uh, of the Putin regime. So for that reason, he will not use nuclear weapons. So I'm not concerned about his use of nuclear weapons. Having said that, I would also uh, stress, we should never ever give in to nuclear blackmail. Those who surrender to nuclear blackmail are condemned to live in eternal slavery under the whip of the nuclear master. So we should never ever accept that kind of threats. There have been reports um, that former senior U.S. officials quietly met with Russian officials for back-channel talks on Ukraine. I don't know if you know about them, but let me ask you this. Would you engage in track 1.5 or track 2 diplomacy with Russia at this point? I don't know anything about it. I saw the reports. I have no knowledge about it. But in my opinion, it's naive. In the best case, it's really naive, uh, and it can only be used by the Russian propaganda. I think what we have one thing to do, it is to help the Ukrainians with all the weapons they need to kick out the Russians uh, from Ukrainian uh, territory. The Ukrainians have the will to fight, and if we give them the means to fight, they have a fair chance to retake lost land. And as for Rasmussen, it's a pleasure to have you on again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And that was Anders Foe Rasmussen, the former Secretary General of NATO. Next week, AI and geopolitics. We'll have Paul Share, who wrote the cover essay of FP's summer print issue, The Scramble for AI. You will not want to miss this one. Remember, subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up on foreignpolicy.com and use the code FPLIVE for a discount. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown 
of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.